It's the third day of our spring, seven-day session, 3rd of October 2017. And uh, we're going to continue with uh, our text. It's called Impetus to Advance in the Zen Gate, um, translated by uh, J.C. Cleary and and coming from his book entitled Meditating with Koans. And uh, we're just going to finish up, and, and this, um, this text is by, is by uh, Yunshi Zhu Hong. Um, his his uh, Japanese name is Unsei Shuko, and he, he was the eighth Chinese patriarch of the Pure Land School, as well as being a master of the Chan School, Zen. And we're going to just finish off um, with the uh, with uh, Cleary's introduction. We just had a couple of paragraphs to go on that before getting into the text itself. And um, we left off where Cleary's using this comparison between between um, uh, running and um, meditation, and he finishes by saying. Um, in sports, the mark of pro true proficiency is when the athlete has so thoroughly internalized the proper techniques and perceptions needed in the sport that he or she puts them into practice automatically in the moment without having to think about them. The same could be said of meditation and the other central practices of Buddhism, like generosity, discipline, patience, proper application of energy, and the wisdom to see things as they are rather than as one might wish them to be. True proficiency arrives when the practitioner's mind has been restructured, restructured to the point that the Buddhist virtues are embodied spontaneously, moment to moment, without the need for a deliberate effort. Um, sometimes in sports they talk about getting into the zone where everything everything just flows um, and this is really, it's really talking about about mastery here yeah. so not just um, having a little bit of of, a, of insight but but really um, incorporating the teachings into one's very being so that they, they become um, our functioning, our natural functioning. And he mentions here these, these um, other, he calls these other central practices of Buddhism. And he mentions five um, uh, generosity, discipline, patience, proper application of energy, and the wisdom to see things as they are, rather than as one might wish them to be. And of course, these with um, dhyana, which is meditation, which we've been talking about all through this, these make up the six parameters or perfections, which are the the virtues that are perfected by a bodhisattva in the course of, of his or her development. 
another way of thinking of them is is as the the in, essential ingredients of enlightened life and they all um, each of them supports the other five so um, meditation dhyana um, facilitates our uh, growing in wisdom prajna dana generosity um, lays the groundwork for the letting go that that needs to take place through meditation and that that gives rise to the prajna Sheila is is also a, a very much a foundational aspect to to developing these practices. Aligning aligning one's life with the laws of the universe. If if we if we try to meditate without having done that, then. Um, The meditation won't go well because we'll we'll be agitated and um, working again, working at cross purposes. A mind uh, f full of full of this uh, thoughts, cravings, remorse of different kinds. All of this is, is um, cleaned up, cleared up with, through ethical conduct. And it, it, it keep, they're keeping on being a, a reinforcements back and forth because of course the more we have prajna, this, this transcendent wisdom, then the clearer um, it will be uh, what those laws of the universe are and the the wisdom of of upholding them so mastery really involves um, embodying all of these six parameters With the with the strong support of our, our sitting, our dhyana, you could say our our work is done when 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 we've um, fully developed all these six aspects of our lives. Then then it's possible to wholeheartedly devote ourselves to facilitating well-being in ourselves and other sentient beings. If we're at this point of mastery we could even go to hell and practice.
We may know of people who are like this, who people who work in hellish environments and and maintain their um, equanimity, their generosity, and so forth. So he finishes saying, the collection of Zen lessons translated below was meant for practical use. It is a reference guide for working with koans. Its instructions and examples can instruct us, inspire us, and spur us on. We can best repay Zhu uh, Hong's great compassion in composing impetus to advance in the Zen gate by using this book as it was intended. So it's a practical a practical book, something to put into practice. And it doesn't mean we um, have to follow every every um, every single suggestion that's that's put forward here. Um, but to take to take what we need and leave the rest. So this, these instructions come from many different different teachers over over uh, many centuries, and um, s some of the stuff we'll find helpful, some we won't. the The best thing with with um, texts like this and and with with Taisho and encouragement jokes in general, is just to come to the the teaching with openness, and and. A willingness to be inspired, uh, to learn. But if if something in the text doesn't inspire, uh, then just to move on, to leave it. I remember going to Roshi, complaining to him about about encourage, the encouragement talks that that which I felt were not uh, use useful for, for me at that time. They often were just I would find them discouraging, actually, and uh, he just um, uh, encouraged me, actually, just to take what I needed from from the teaching. Okay, now we go to our actual text, Impetus to Advance in the Zen Gate, and that we start off with uh, Zhu Hong's preface. <coughs> he says, How could Zen be thought to have a gate? The path itself has no inside or outside, no going out or going in. What then? But then it comes to people We just start again. How could there be thought to? How could Zen be thought to have a gate? The path has no inside or outside, no going out or going in. But when it comes to people carrying out the path, some are deluded and some are enlightened. He's presenting here uh, the two sides of the coin. 
um, that are are the the you could say the creative tension behind um, all teaching in the Zen school. How could Zen be thought to have a gate when it doesn't come or go, this truth? It has no past or future. How could we possibly think in terms of, of entering it when we're already there? We've already arrived. There's a there's a famous verse in in the uh, Mumon Khan. It's the last case, number forty-eight, and in Mumon's verse goes like this: Before taking a step, you have already arrived. Before the tongue has moved, the teaching is finished. Though each move is ahead of the next, know there is still another way up. In our ordinary conventional thinking, we think in terms of, of taking steps, of going from here to there, of passing through gates, milestones, you could say. But in this verse, Mumon reminds us that there's another way. A way of, of non-attainment. No coming and going. Before taking a step, you have already arrived. So we've got to hold these, these two sides together. The side of no gates, no inside or outside, but also this other side, which um, Zhu Hong mentions, but when it comes to people carrying out the path, some are deluded and some are enlightened. We can't get around this one either, that um, some understand more, some understand less, some can realize more or less of the Dharma in their lives. But our minds tend to want to to um, stick to one or other of the two these two sides, and um, say it's like this. It's like it's all about no no coming and going, or it's all about attainment, going somewhere, getting somewhere, achieving something, and and um, sticking to either side of this 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 um, uh, double truth is uh, gives rise to problems. If we completely emphasis the the no attainment side, the the having already arrived, you could say, then it's it's possible to fall into what's known as bujizen, where we we. Uh, we rationalize that that um, that since we're already enlightened, then 
we don't need to concern ourselves with uh, seeking enlightenment, realizing enlightenment. And this, in the history of, of, of Zen, this was seen as the, um, the danger, uh, especially for those practicing silent illumination. You could fall from, from um, you could say, from uh, into laxity. That's, that's one side of it. The other side of it is that if the emphasis was on on um, acquiring something, then um, one would have an, a restless, acquisitive kind of a practice, and a practice focused on on um, racking up achievements. And also of identifying oneself, identifying oneself either as among the unenlightened, the deluded, and therefore a hopeless case, and probably bringing a lot of, of tension and anxiety to the practice, or um, identifying oneself as having attained something, and with the pride that comes with that, and of course that leading to blocks to further opening, further awakening. So our, our, our job is to, is to hold these two truths together. The absolute truth of, of uh, a Buddha nature being unborn and undying, not coming or going. And the other side of recognizing that That's all very well, but it has to be realized. It has to be made real in our lives. All this talk about enlightenment, about this, this um, no thing, which we make a thing when we talk about it, of course, and through, through, through labeling it. Um, somebody, somebody in Doksan um, yesterday was saying, I have no idea what it is. And um, Roshi Coldhead actually says, often says, um, as a kind of, summing that up, he said, it's not what you think. But um, just to to do a little explaining and risk and risk damnation, um, there is a there is um, it's a passage um, in the book that we were looking at yesterday, Illuminating Silence, which is one of the best explanations I've actually read of um, 
the different ways that we can understand this word enlightenment. And I think this it's, it's really important to be to be clear about the different ways in which this this word is used. So we're not really talking about what it's referring to, but the way in which it it um, we think about it. He says, an enlightenment experience, and he's going to talk about um, actually just just a little bit earlier here. We are. He says, a prime difficulty concerns the very term enlightenment itself. This noun is commonly employed by teachers and is used in many texts without distinguishing between three alternative meanings. It may de denote either an experience or a state resulting from some achievement or fruition or a developmental process linking the two. So an experience is different from a state. Experience is something that, that comes and goes. A state is something more durable, longer, lasting. And then the third one, a developmental process linking these two, how we get from the, the experience to uh, the state from, from um, realization of the truth to actualization of it in our lives. And he says, failure to distinguish clearly between these usages leads to muddled comprehension and sometimes also to erroneous claims. An enlightenment experience, Jan Shin in Chinese, Kensho in Japanese, is a discrete event in which all self-concern falls away and the practitioner sees the nature um, in other words, Buddha nature, without any filtering by egoistic interests or dualistic conceptualization. The, impl the event implies that there is an innate basis of mind, the nature, simply obscured by the ignorance of self-concerned thought and feeling. It is often a supremely life-changing moment, opening the practitioner to a mysterious, selfless world of great brilliance, vividness and depth. It gives rise to a direct insight both into ignorance as a source of human suffering, implicit in self-focused activity, that's another way of saying our, our, our self-partiality, and the existential fact of an alternative vision. So seeing that there's this whole other way of being in the world that um, functions beautifully without ego. It may also give rise to a profound compassion for all sentient beings. For those with a conceptual understanding of Dharma, it is an experiential, experiential confirmation. However, such experiences are rare, usually of short duration, and followed by the re-emergence of self with a renewal of doubt and questioning but based now in a mind that has seen and which therefore continues training from an entirely fresh, revelatory basis. 
most records suggest that even great masters only see the nature a few times in their nonetheless transformed lives. When enlightenment is used to refer to a state or a developmental process, it usually implies that an individual has surpassed some threshold to reach an irreversible condition, kai wu in Chinese, and satori is the, is the term in Japanese that is used for this. So kensho is seen as an initial, often um, a shallow experience, but satori is used to refer to this deep enlightenment where, the, where there's um, irreversible transformation. So when enlightenment is used to refer to a state or to a developmental process, it usually implies that an individual has surpassed some threshold to reach an irreversible condition in which wisdom and compassion are conjoined in a stance of benevolence toward all sentient beings. The schools of Buddhism differ in their emphasis on wisdom and compassion and with respect to the time taken to reach such a state. Some schools believe that many lifetimes must pass before an enlightenment arising from repeated training can occur. Others believe enlightenment can arise within one lifetime given an appropriate history of practice and good karma. Some schools seem to think that bodhisattvas are enlightened, others restrict this label to Buddhas. Uh, Shifu, in other words, Sheng Yin, has said that an enlightened person, that in an enlightened person, the functional ego is replaced by the skillful means arising from wisdom. Many people are confused in thinking that enlightenment as a state implies some continuing ecstasy of bliss and awareness, such as may be experienced in Kensho. This does not appear to be correct understanding. The fully enlightened practitioner may said to be one who lives from a perspective of a wisdom understanding which functions without ego concern under all circumstances. So this, this um, uh, dropping away of ego concern is the mark of deep awakening. The ego concern is no longer getting in the way and distorting perceptions and responses. Such a realized person lives normally in the world, simply lacking habitual self-concern. He or she will have a mirror-like quality in which others see themselves rather than seeing the reactivity of ego in the one before them. A brief enlightenment experience may be the origin of such a condition, but the majority of such experiences are not followed by the persistence of an enlightened state. Rather, selfish vexations return, but with a reduced vigor. It may be that some individuals develop a capacity to generate the experience of selfless bliss. Others may find themselves there more frequently, but for most the condition is a short-term blessing. Since the experience does not ensure the emergence of the state of being an enlightened person, further practice is the essential norm. The, the habit forces, for, for most, after most experiences, the habit forces uh, re, uh, 
assert themselves. And so continued practice is essential. And the idea with the with um, the, the koan curriculum is that they provide uh, vehicles for um, returning again and again and again to to that um, place of of uh, non differentiation. Yet there is another way of envisaging this condition, not so much as an experience, but more as a form of knowledge. In the Saodong tradition, it's the Soto, enlightenment is said to be no different from practice. This view focuses on the meditative fading away of categorizations of all kinds, time, space, self, until a residual nothingness is discovered in which everything is nonetheless mirrored. Such an approach does not therefore emphasize the sudden experiential revelatory aspect of enlightenment, but rather the discovery of an underlying condition of mind implicitly always present. To know this state is thus more a type of knowing than an experience of insight of limited duration. Some may argue that this Saodong approach is the more mature perspective, and it is the deep view of silent illumination. And it's um, one of the reasons why most, mostly, for most people in our tradition, um, shikantaza is, is done at the, at the end of the formal part of the training, um, where it's seen as, you could say, it's seen as a, the, the, the fruit of practice rather than as a, as a practice in itself. Anyone who has seen the nature is unlikely to claim to be an enlightened person, even when a master has confirmed the experience. He or she simply knows what a glimpse of enlightenment entails. Indeed, anyone claiming to be enlightened is probably acting erroneously from an inflated ego, which a teacher has been unable to contain. Simple humility alone will normally prevent any such claim. People may consider another person to be enlightened on observing an exceptional being who seems truly to have transcended the vexations of this world. It is doubtful whether there are more than a handful of such persons alive in any one generation. Some may become great lamas, masters or teachers. Others may remain entirely unknown except perhaps to a few. Let's just give, put a little bit of perspective around around these, this term, and around our, 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 um, our project in in uh, practice. Now to continue with. Um, Zhu Hong's preface. 
So he's, he's stated these two sides of this creative tension um, between um, Zen that has no gate, that has no inside and outside, and the need to, to realize this. Therefore, the people of knowledge, acting as gatekeepers, have no choice but to open and close the Zen gate in a timely fashion. They are careful to keep it locked most of the time and rigorously check out those who would enter. To those whose words diverge from the truth, those who indulge their selfishness and overstep the proper measure, the gatekeepers have no room to peddle their dishonesty. For a long time already they have barred the door to such people so they cannot easily get through. So um, can guess he's talking about teachers here in terms of acting as gatekeepers, that one of the functions of a teacher is to, is to help the student through, through testing to have a sense of, of uh, their understanding, what their understanding is. And he puts this in terms of being a gatekeeper, rigorously checking out those who would enter. And then he says this thing about to those whose words diverge from the truth, etc. The gatekeepers have no room to peddle their dishonesty. Um, we don't know exactly what he's what he's referring to here, but uh, might guess that he's talking about corrupt monks, because at this time, 1600, when he was was writing this work, it was a time when there were where it was a lot of. Um, um, corruption in uh, in Buddhism, and in another work he complains about a number of, of so-called monks who were actually fortune tellers, alchemists, geomancers, um, f doing these different occupations through which they would gain quite a lot of um, uh, wealth. And also, um, f um, he may be talking here about people making false claims to mastery and and uh, gathering gathering followers around them, but their their understanding not being true. So this is probably what he's talking about here. Here, charlatans of different kinds. He says, when I first left home, and became a monk, I acquired a booklet from the booksellers called Outline of the Buddhas and Patriarchs of the Zen School. In this book were recorded accounts given by many of the venerable adepts of old. They gave accounts of their studies, of their initial difficulties in entering the path, of their experiences and travail on the path and in doing the work, and of their final opening through into spiritual awakening. I felt great love and admiration and vowed to learn what they had learned. So he has this, he comes across this book and um, it, it inspires him. He feels this deep connection to these, these ancient practitioners. Afterwards, I never again saw this book anywhere else. And you get the sense that he looked, he searched for it, but he couldn't find it again. So I continued to read through all the recorded sayings and miscellaneous biographies in the Five Lamps. The Five Lamps is a big collection of, of um, 
uh, accounts of of uh, masters and, and students down through the ages. No matter whether they were monks or laymen, all those who engaged in real study and genuinely awakened are included in this book, this is the five lamps. I have culled out the most essential parts to form a collection, which I call impetus to advance in the Zen gate. So it's quite a wonderful impulse here behind his putting together this book, that he had found a similar book as a, as a young man and been inspired by it, but then couldn't find it again. And so, so being so grateful for this experience, he undertakes to recreate, in a sense, this book that was so important to him, to share the inspiration with others. He goes on, This book can be set on a desk when you are staying somewhere, or carried along in your bag when you travel. Once you read it, your mind will be your mind and will will be stimulated and your spirit will blaze up. You will be impelled to drive yourself on to catch up with those who have gone forward through the Zen gate before you. So we can say he's, he's laying out here what he sees as the purpose of this book. To, to stimulate us to practice, to light our fire. He says, your spirit will blaze up. You can imagine that this was what his experience was of reading this book, the earlier book. Of his spirit catching, catching a light. You will be impelled to drive yourself on to catch up with those who have gone forward through the Zen gate before you. To, when we when we read these accounts, it can give rise to a strong aspiration to to experience what these these old masters experienced. Some may say, this collection was put together for those who have not yet passed through the gate. Those who have already passed through the gate are long gone. How can they use it? To them I respond, even though it is so, beyond this gate there is another gate. By pretending to crow like a rooster, you may temporarily escape from the tiger's mouth. But those who are satisfied with petty attainments are people with added ignorance. They have not yet come to the end of the rivers and mountains they still have to cross. Beyond this gate, there is another gate. We always have gates to go through because we can always deepen our understanding, widen our compassion, open our hearts. Further. Sometimes um, the, these these 
stories of the old masters um, have the opposite um, effect that they're supposed to have, in that we can feel we can feel this um, uh, we can feel discouraged that we'll ever um, be able to emulate what they have uh, achieved, and and I think it's fair to say that in 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 boiling down as as is so often done in Zen, boiling down the stories of different um, stu uh, students and masters down to the essentials of their of their, um, their beginning on the path, say, and their different insights, a lot is cut out, which can make it seem like these guys are, are just like spiritual geniuses. Of course, some of them are. Um, but the way in which the story is told can lend itself to that impression. Um, this has been recognized right from early times in Zen itself. Um, there's a, there's a, a famous line in, in one of the koans in the Blue Cliff record, Hikigan Roku, this is Engo, Wan uh, Wu, he says, no one recognizes the sweating horses of the past. They only want to emphasize the achievement of the crowning age. We love to hear the stories about uh, um, people's achievements, but very often what is lost is all the effort that went into those achievements, all the effort that got, got the person to the place where it could seem to be an, just a, um, uh, opening, spontaneous, touching into vastness. There's another saying, uh, behind every jewel there are 3,000 sweating horses. You think of the the forces that go into the formation of a diamond, the pressures. So it, it we may we may. Um, it may be helpful to to um, just remember this, that that um, these stories these stories you could say emphasise the achievements crowning the age, but in every single one, there there behind those achievements is a sweating horse. Pulling that heavy load, um, climbing steep mountains. Crossing great deserts. Getting, getting bogged down in swamps, but continuing.
the warning stickers in your hand. Run fast and gallop on forever until you break through the ultimate mysterious barrier. Then it will not be too late to slow down and have the feast at the end of your studies. Seems to be talking to us sweating horses right here. Run fast and gallop on forever until you break through the ultimate mysterious barrier. Not sure exactly what he means by the warning stick in, is in your hand. Um, could be the Kyosaku. He's talking about the Kyosaku. So this the stick of the training. Uh, the stick is in our hand. We we are the one ultimately who wields it. It's up to us how we engage with the training. Run fast and gallop on forever until you break through the ultimate mysterious barrier. There is, there is an urgency to our work because this world of ours so needs enlightened vision. It is so desperate for this other perspective that is so so ignored by us and by the wider culture. This perspective that recognizes the transcendent, that sees beyond conventional values of acquisition and success and wealth. But we do need to make haste slowly. It's old Roman slogan, Festina Lente. To take our time. Not in the sense of, of dragging our feet, but in the sense of bringing everything to this moment. And seeing this moment as being something complete in and of itself, just as we are complete, just as we are. Perfect, just as we are. completely accepting where we are right now. While at the same time aspiring to unfold completely into awakened reality. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.